This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. A referendum on Scottish independence, but what would it mean for defence? There's a whole raft of issues of great economic as well as strategic importance for which we have not yet had proper answers. Another Iranian nuclear scientist is killed. Squid Wars, Argentina puts the pressure on Falklands fishermen. And would military academies prevent a new generation of rioters? Independence for Scotland has been high on the news agenda this week as a row broke out between Westminster and Holyrood over when a referendum can be called and who can call it. Scotland's First Minister Alex Salmond claims he can hold a vote on independence in 2014. But the British government insists it has to authorise a legally binding ballot and wants the vote to be held sooner. But if Scotland were to break away from the Union, what would it mean for defence? Let's start by taking a look at British defence assets based in Scotland. Here's BFBS reporter Carla Prater. The MOD employs more than 20,000 people throughout Scotland, from the Scots regiments based in Edinburgh and Inverness and 4-5 Commando based in Arbroath to typhoon squadrons and search and rescue helicopters and crews on the Type 45 destroyers like Defender and Diamond. A referendum for independence could have effects across the forces. One of the major concerns is what will happen to Britain's nuclear weapons. They're all located in Faslane and Coolport in Argyll. The Scottish National Party have made it clear they would try to remove them if independence was granted, but finding an alternative site will not be easy. Also vulnerable are the defence industry contracts within Scotland, including those which service the Navy's Type 45 destroyers and submarines. With annual sales of over £1.8 billion, contracts for development, manufacture and support services are vulnerable. Last year, the government announced restructuring plans to hand RF Lucas and Kinloss over to the army, to move typhoon squadrons to Lossiemouth and to relocate troops to make room for those returning from Germany. If independence were granted, it would mean restructuring on a massive scale. With such uncertainty, the questions are wide-ranging and the pressure is now growing for answers. Carla Prater reporting. Well, earlier I spoke to Liberal Democrat MP Sir Ming Campbell and asked him how concerned he was that the SNP hadn't really addressed the issue of defence. There are too many questions which are unanswered, of which defence is a very important one. Uh, Scotland has traditionally been a very substantial contributor to the defence of the United Kingdom. Uh, And the Scottish National Party, who would hope to achieve a yes vote in a referendum on independence, have been surprisingly coy about exactly what defence would amount to in Scotland if Scotland were to be independent. And let me give you just one illustration of that, if I may. We have very substantial military shipbuilding facilities on the Clyde. At the moment, the two aircraft carriers are being assembled at Rosyth. Uh, These are enormous projects of great value, which make a very substantial impact, favourable impact, on the economy. Would a Scottish government in an independent Scotland be able to ensure that there were sufficient orders of that kind to maintain the existing military shipbuilding industry? I doubt it very much, but that's why I'd like them to come clean about it. 
not only the shipbuilding industry, there are many pressing issues, uh, not least Faslane, what would happen to the UK's nuclear deterrent, also the sheer number of Scottish regiments and uh, the rebasing of troops from Germany. Of all of these issues, which do you think are the most pressing? Well, I have a constituency interest in the issue of the rebasing of troops from Germany because uh, in my constituency there is the Air Force Base Royal Air Force Lucas. And as a result of the Strategic Defence and Security Review, that base, it is proposed, is to be closed. But we've been told that as an alternative there would be units uh, stationed on the base from the army made up of those coming back from Germany. Uh, would these be welcome in Scotland by an independent uh, Scottish government? Uh, would a London government want to place such units into an independent Scotland? I think these are questions which are uh, of such uncertainty that we really need some obvious answers. You also raised the question of uh, Faz Lane, of the nuclear submarine base there. What the Scottish National Party says, they want the Trident submarines out of that base, but they would be willing to continue servicing uh, the nuclear submarines, the, the, those that don't carry uh, nuclear weapons, but which are nuclear powered. Would a London-based government be of the view that that would be a safe and suitable way in which to deal with nuclear powered submarines? I doubt it very much. There's a whole raft of issues of great economic as well as strategic importance for which we have not yet had proper answers. Were you the Defence Secretary, what would you be saying to Alex Salmond today? If I was the Defence Secretary, I'd be saying to Alex Salmond, we want clarity. We want clarity because, be quite clear, we will be campaigning for a no vote in any referendum calling for independence in Scotland. Uh, but as part of the discussion in advance of that, then I would like you, Alex Salmond, to be quite clear about what resources, financial resources, would be available for defence in Scotland, how you would spend them, and what international organisations you would be willing to be a member of. Because all of these issues are abs would be absolutely fundamental to an independent Scotland. And it seems to me they need to be answered first uh, before we proceed down the path of independence. I said earlier today, uh, independence is not just for Christmas. In the case of Scotland, it would mean bringing an end to constitutional arrangements which have existed for more than 300 years. It's a momentous step, a step from which it would be very, very difficult to come back. And that's why we need a full-scale debate. It's why we need a referendum. But in the course of that debate, we need a proper account of the uh, information available about the consequences of independence financially, economically, socially and of course defensively too. That was the Liberal Democrat MP Simmingus Campbell. BFBS reporter James Hurst joins us now. Hello James. Um, you've been following this closely. Alex Salmond and the SNP haven't really addressed defence and security have they? Well certainly that's how their critics see it and uh, I've certainly seen, I think, Alex Salmon being asked some fairly detailed questions on defence a few months back now, and, and those questions were not really getting anywhere. And it, it is one of the stickier 
questions for this whole thing. If you look at their their manifesto from uh, 2011, um, you've, got, you've got one page on independence here. The page after it is their place in the world. Doesn't really. It's not defence per se, but you've got in there in there. What's your ambition for Scotland? Two points that really come on defence: contributing to international peacekeeping and peace building, not illegal wars, freeing Scotland from nuclear weapons. Now, manifestos are always fairly broad brush, but that gives a fairly clear indication that actually they want to work in a completely different way in terms of foreign policy and defence to the way they see Britain having worked. I mean, there had been some suggestions floated in the past that independence could see a shared defence force, shared um, foreign policy, but actually this this is not about sharing that is written in, in that manifesto. What is written in that manifesto is about Scotland, although it doesn't say having our own defence force, it's about Scotland having its own completely own say over how defence and foreign policy seems to work to in, me. Indeed. Well, let's talk briefly about the other option that the SNP wants in any referendum, the so-called Devo Max option. What is that, first of all? It is not full independence, but it is greater powers to Scotland. And this, this, this is one of the contentions between Westminster and Scotland at the moment, because David Cameron wants them just to go, yes, no, on independence. He doesn't want a second question about Devo Max. Effectively, Devo Max would see Scotland taking control of far more than it's in control of at the moment. Most significantly, its own, completely its own economy, so its own tax raising and spending. At the moment, it's funded from a block grant from Westminster. It would raise its own taxes, it's sort out, deal with its own income, deal with its own spending. And that is the, 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 the crucial bit as far as Alex Salmond is con- concerned. And it is some of this more difficult stuff, like defence and, I think, foreign policy, it, that, that, that they would they would go, yeah, that, that we, we stay within the United States. So is that what Devo Max would mean, do you think? Do you think defence would stay within... Uh, De- in Devo London, Max has not been written yet, so it can be written however they want, but the impression I get is actually it's one of those things that they feel is a bit too sticky that might put people off going for full independence, and they're not quite as it's not it's not as high on their wish list okay so that that is where just but the 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 other point if i was to be slightly cantankerous here there will be some people who go why are we asking this it's not going to happen the polling at the moment 33 percent of scots in favor of independence 53 percent against 14 percent undecided you can't actually say it's not going to happen. But the polling you know, still says the Scottish nationalists have got a long way to go to win an independence referendum. All right, James Hurst, thank you. Still to come, another Iranian nuclear scientist is killed. And could military schools be the answer to the problem of Britain's troubled teens? Iran has accused Israel and the United States of killing a scientist working at one of the country's nuclear facilities. Mustafa Ahmadi Roshan died in an explosion yesterday. Earlier, I spoke to John Marks, who is editorial director of Cross Border Information, and I asked him what he knew about the latest attack. Well, again, the details are sketchily available. Um, a scientist murdered in the centre of Tehran. Um, as with previous killings, it seems that some people, guy turns up on a motorbike, plants a magnetic bomb near a car and it explodes. It's all like something out of a Tintin book. 
This is the fifth Iranian scientist to be killed since 2007. The Iranians are saying it's Israel and have accused the US. Who do you think is behind this attack and previous attacks and what are they trying to achieve? Well, it is mysterious because there's two schools of thought. The biggest finger points towards the Israelis, whose official spokesman and unofficial spokesman have been ambiguous on the issue, to say the least. Um, and we know that the Israelis have a history going right the way back from um, to score settling um, with, with former Nazis, and indeed even to the time of the... Um, the, the British were there, of using assassination as a sort of selective political tool. So clearly the Israelis who are deeply concerned about the prospects for um, Iranian nuclear activity are a leading suspect. The other ones that the um, Iranians, of course, are um, pointing the finger to is the great Satan, the United States. But the Americans are being even untypically um, assertive in saying, no, this time it wasn't us and we don't approve of it. Um, and indeed it doesn't fit into the general American pattern of behavior, at least in, in the last uh, recent times. Um, you could say, well, the Americans use drones to go and kill um, uh, radical jihadists or alleged jihadists in places like Yemen and Pakistan. But that fits within the global war of terror and, in fact, legally kind of fits within the American framework as it was set out during the Bush years. Assassinating Iranian scientists doesn't work. So that's the mainstream view that it's probably the Israelis working with local agent satellites or, or whatever. But there's a minority view, which some very serious people hold, that it may not be all the Israelis, and in fact there may also be some score settling going on in the very murky elite politics of Iran itself, and that some of the scientists who've died have been um, associated with opposition activity in Iran, and it may be that their assassination may be part of some kind of political poison brewing up within Iran, which is aimed at discrediting both enemies abroad and, and within, within the Islamic Republic. Do you think it's now inevitable that Iran will develop a nuclear bomb? I think the consensus is that they've come a very long way towards doing so. We had the International Atomic Energy Agency in their recent report saying, you know, that in secret... Um, away from the eyes of the international community, the Iranians have gone a long way along these lines. We know that their missile technology is improving all the time and that there seems to be a consensus at the top of the Iranian establishment, both in the theocratic leadership but amongst the military and certainly with um, President uh, Ahmadinejad and his allies um, in the executive and indeed in the um, Islamic Republican Guard Corps, that this is, a, is something that Iran should be doing, that Iran will emerge as a nuclear power, and I, I believe that it will be so. At the moment, it seems that Israel has pulled back from the idea of a bombing campaign. You know, we're looking at things like more EU sanctions. The Iranians are going to be squeezed on issues such as oil. It's difficult to get parts and equipment. Um, we've seen the scientific uh, science scientists being murdered, so there's covert operations. But the fact is this is slowing the process. It's making the process more difficult, and it's making the international situation more difficult. But there's no sign of the Iranians turning back on this, and it does look as if, yes, they're going to head towards becoming uh, a military nuclear power. Let's move on to Syria now. A very defiant President Bashar al-Assad saying he'll meet insurgents with an iron fist this week. He's also saying he's close to quashing the uprising. Um, Syria now 
virtually no allies left. Is it toughing it out as it's seen Iran do a couple of years ago following the Iranian presidential election? I think very much so. Indeed, um, if Syria has allies left, it would be looking towards Tehran and that old hawkish kind of alliance that they have. And there are reports coming through that some of Iran's proxy players um, who are used to organizing death squads um, have, have actually moved into the Syrian theater. So Syria's isolated. Dr. Bashar, uh, the unlikely president when he took over, wasn't supposed to be from his father, is, 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 is showing he has an iron fist and desperately grappling to hang on in power. But it's a very, very difficult situation for him. The situation is murky. There's clearly momentum. There's a popular movement. We've even seen demonstrations, particularly since those Arab League observers came into the country. Indeed, in I was, I was Damascus and Aleppo. But across the country, there are big problems. Um, the the regime clearly is, is, is worried, but I can't see it cracking just uh, for the moment. You mentioned the Arab League observers. Can they achieve very much? Um, he himself is uh, denouncing them. One member has already resigned, saying they're not being allowed to achieve what they want. And there's also claims that the death rates have gone up since they've been there. Well, you know, the Arab League was always seen as being profoundly toothless. Um, at the moment, it's probably got some dentures in, but it probably needs a bit more glue to keep them fully in its mouth. But the fact is, it is changing. And I think the Arab League um, intervention's been quite important for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it's actually challenged one of the bits of the Syrian ruling ideology, which I think can't be underestimated in this case. And that is, if you go to Syria, it sees itself as the central player in the Arab tradition. Remember, it's the last Ba'athist party still running, and, and the country that is set against Israel, set against imperialism in the great pan-Arab um, tradition. And that pan-Arab tradition, of course, embodied in the creation of the Arab League and in its rhetoric, if not in its actions, over the past several decades. Now, that has been undermined. So Syria is now standing alone. And although ideology doesn't perhaps play the most central role in these things, it's still important. The second factor about it is that it does seem to have emboldened people to come out onto the streets. It takes extreme bravery to come out onto the streets, even in a large crowd in a situation like Syria. Look at the numbers of demonstrators who've been killed, and yet people are still coming, standing up to be counted. And having the Arab League there has been important. It's slightly changed the dynamic. Of course, it's not the game changer, but it's another element adding to the pressure on Bashar al-Assad and creating the kind of strange figure that we saw on the television this week where he was rambling about the Iron Fist and then he's got his own um, spin doctors coming in and trying to remake his soft image as the family man with his very media-friendly um, wife. He remains in power, not least because among the ruling elite, even if many people may not particularly approve of uh, Bashar themselves and may see the use for a strong man, no one really wants to step in and take his place because it's actually a bit too difficult. That was John Marks, editorial director of Cross Border Information. Now, Argentina has reportedly started a squid war against the Falkland Islands. Fishermen in the country are being told to catch the sea creatures before they reach the waters around the British territory. The Falklands fishing industry is said to be worth up to £45 million a year, half of which comes from catches of squid. Well, Dr Eric Grove is a professor of naval history at the University of Salford and James Hurst is still here in the studio. Um, Eric Grove, first of all, good to speak to you. Hello, you. Hello. It's, it seems like another way that Argentina is putting pressure on the Falkland Islands. Will it have any effect? Do we take it seriously? 
Well, I think it always has to be taken seriously, although I, the military threat to the Falklands is is not as, as, as great as all that at the moment. The Argentine arm, armed forces are not exactly in great shape. Hence, they're huffing and puffing and they're putting a lot of political pressure on. They're trying to get friends like the Uruguayans and so on, although it's interesting that the Uruguayans let the Royal Navy ice... Um, a patrol ship come and visit and found various excuses for it um it, it, it's imp still important politically in argentina that they keep making these claims that they put whatever pressure they can clearly the argentines would like to take over the falkland islands particularly the oil and the other resources around it um but uh, i suspect that uh, it is more of more huffing and puffing than shall we say blowing the house down you mentioned uh, uruguay uh, what do you make of the position of countries like uruguay chile and brazil who are supposed to be supporting argentina's ban on allowing ships flying the Falklands flag to actually dock in their ports. Yes, as long as it's, it, it, it's very interesting that the Uruguayans limited this just to ships flying the illegal Falklands flag, quote, unquote, and they use the excuse that our current ice patrol vessel is, is, a, is, 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 is a former Norwegian merchantman. But, I, but they would have allowed, I think, any white ensign ship coming. Uh, the, the Uruguayans are traditional friends of, friends of Britain. On the other hand, Argentina is just... It is is just over the river plate and they want to keep good relations so so i think there's a sort of a, a south american political dimension here which we have to take seriously and of course whenever britain reviews its defense forces and cuts them particularly its maritime forces then they are then the argentines pick up the signal that perhaps we are no longer capable or interested in projecting power at a distance and this can lead as it did in, in 1982 to serious misperceptions of which james hurst 30th anniversary of the falklands war is coming up um an anniversary which could bring trouble, could it? Yeah, I, I mean, as uh, Eric says, we've had a lot of huffing and puffing. It has been an ongoing verbal spat for quite some months now. The, the, the approach with the 30th anniversary is it is not a significant anniversary like the 25th or the like. So we are not going to see big official commemorations, big official, official events. We're not going to see lots of government shouting about it. But I think it, it has the potential to fuel and stoke that that verbal spat. And of course the other thing that we have coming up before the anniversary um, that, that could also fuel that is the fact we will have Prince William going to the Falklands uh, in uh, his capacity as uh, training as a search and rescue pilot. February and March is due to be there for about six weeks. Uh, Argentina, when that was announced, called it provocative. It is inevitable that it will get media coverage, however much the, the government tried to downplay it. And, you know, I think that again will fuel the, 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 the fires of this ongoing diplomatic, as Eric says, it remains a diplomatic and political row at the moment. Yeah, and Eric, do, do you see this really going any further, or is it just a lot of uh, low-level bullying that's going on here behind the scenes? Well, I think it's sort of low and medium-level rhetoric. I mean, I think sending the prince there is probably quite useful because it shows we are interested. I mean, the problem back in 1982 was it seemed as if we were no longer interested, and an Argentine government that had even more serious political problems than the current Argentine government uh, decided it, it would try and take advantage of this in the misperception that we weren't interested. I think I don't think an Argentine government can at the moment, despite the SDSR, etc., despite the loss of carrier strike. I don't think an Argentine government would think that we would just lie down and let them take over. And we're a long way from that, and I think we're therefore a long way from any, any military action.
Okay, so we've been talking about Squid Wars. That's been the media this week. Um, Prince William, obviously, but not much has been said about this oil exploration recently. Have you heard many more about what's going on about with that, Eric? Well, yes. I mean, they're, they're, they've been talking about oil there. They were even talking about oil in 1982, and some people said it was about oil then, I remember, um, uh, which it wasn't really. Uh, yes, I mean, of course, the Falkland Islanders view with very mixed feelings uh, the growth of the oil, oil industry, because I remember when I was down there in 1998, uh, they were very worried about the effects of this on Falkland society, you know, and could they keep the oil people in some kind of compound, etc, etc. But certainly, if oil was discovered there, it would have enormous economic impact, and it does raise the stakes as far as who owns the islands and the waters around them are concerned. James? Uh, yeah, I mean, as Eric says, it raises the stakes. If you remember, all this spat seemed to really, certainly in the media, hit things again when this oil exploration started, and it doesn't seem to have stopped rumbling since. All right, James Hurst, Eric Grove from the University of Salford, thank you very much for your time today. Pleasure. Now, there's been much talk this week about how the military might be able to help young people at risk of dropping out. The Education Secretary, Michael Gove, who's already said he wants to recruit more former service personnel as teachers, is now saying he'd like cadet units in every state school in the country. And a leading think tank, ResPublica, has recommended setting up military academies to prevent future generations of rioters. Peter Cross is the chief executive of the charity Skill Force, which employs mainly those who've served in the armed forces to mentor, train and educate some of the young people the government is talking about. Uh, Peter, good to talk to you today. Cadet units in every state school, military academies, is it an overreaction, do you think? I, I don't know that I'd describe it as an overreaction. I think it's uh, developing a theme that has got a bit of momentum at the moment. And certainly, I believe that uh, the Secretary of State's idea of um, having people who come out of the military going into teaching his troops to teachers program is a very good one and it's been certainly very successful in the united states where it's been running for about twenty years where nine and a half thousand people have done precisely that and have contributed extremely well to schools so what is it about the military that reaches young people who might be at risk of dropping out it's interesting i don't think it's the military itself that's the that's the um, the necessarily particularly the the key thing here i think that certainly where skill force is effective it's the people that are in front of the young people. This is, they make fantastic role models for these young people, many of whom come from deprived backgrounds, often um, come from single parent families, perhaps certainly many of them lack a positive male role model in their lives. And of course, many of our um, service folk have come from similar backgrounds to these young people, so there's a real empathy with them. So what kind of results have you had in the 11 years you've been running? Well, we've, we've, we've been pretty successful. I mean, we reduced by about five times the predicted exclusion rate that the youngsters um, might get. We reduce about five times again the number who um, drop into this not-in-employment education and training um, bucket, which is awful. You know, as you know, there's over a, over a million um, 16 to 24-year-olds now who are not in employment education. And I suppose perhaps our best statistic is the one where we work with disadvantaged youngsters who are on free school meals. Normally only 9% go into further education. And if they've done the Skillforce program, we get that up to 60%. That's incredible. incredible. It's yeah, a incredible figure. That. Is that to do with simply uh, having a positive role model then? 
It, it's, it's more than just that, but that is probably the key thing. We also get them qualifications that, that enable them to enter a further education college, and so that, that's, that's helpful as well. So we, we do a mix of vocational things, we do things that get them qualifications, and we also do things like the Duke of Edinburgh's award scheme and first aid training and so on. The suggestion in the media is that the veterans will bring back discipline that's lacking in the classroom. Is that the problem, discipline? No, I don't think that is the problem, and I don't think that's what we're about either. Uh, I think helping the youngsters understand what self-discipline is about is a very helpful thing, and I think Skillforce can help with that, and, and the use of former service folk can do that. I think it's about putting some structure into the young people's lives, giving them boundaries, but it's not about discipline, and it's certainly not about anything to do with a boot camp or anything like that. It's, it, that's absolutely not what we're about. The popular kind of thing that people were saying during those riots in the summer last year was that they didn't have any respect they wanted respect uh, what kind of thing are the young people you're coming across saying to you about what will make them want to achieve more i think everybody wants to feel a a part of society and a, to be part of a team and part of a group and successfully part of that and to be proud of it and i think many of the young people find that difficult in the situations they find themselves in their school lives and their home lives and in their neighborhoods and certainly I think helping people to work as part of a team and to be part of something that's successful and I think um, that's where this Respublica paper's got some jolly good ideas around the cadet forces which are excellent youth organizations which work out of school very different to skill force because they're military and skill force is absolutely not a military organization but uh, the combination of the two um, is, is very powerful and very good. When you're choosing the kind of people that you're going to put into schools and to help people um, what kind of former forces person are you looking for we're taking a complete variety from from those who are who served for a fairly short period of time some of whom may end up, uh, have perhaps been wounded on operations recently and they can start in our military to mentors program which is part of Michael Gove's troops to teachers program where they work on a one-to-one -one basis with young people but we also take people who've got instructional experience um, but perhaps you know, corporals and, and above, through to officers, uh, and they, they form the majority of the 150 or so folk that we've got working in 150 schools. What kind of jobs do you see the people that you're helping go into? Uh, well, they, a lot of them aren't going to get five A-star to CGCSEs, as things stand, so they're probably not going to end up going to university, for instance. So, so they're going into some of the lower-skilled jobs, but nonetheless, these are the jobs that people require jolly good outward-facing customer skills and all those sorts of things. We, we teach them how to problem solve, work as part of a team and generally be useful to a future employer. And Peter, you were in the army yourself, weren't you, for many years. Um, how did you do at school? Uh, well, I, I didn't pass my A-levels, so I, I didn't do as well as I should have done, to be honest, but I did get to Sandhurst and managed to, to put myself on track after that, to be honest. All right, Peter Cross, good to talk to you. Thanks for your time today. Peter Cross from Skillforce. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. My thanks to all our guests and, of course, James Hurst. Christopher Lee will be back next week. Let us know your thoughts on today's programme. You can follow us on Twitter. Tweet us at BFBS Sitrep. Thanks for listening and bye-bye for now. <laughs>